This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. And today I'm joined with Gina Cox, PhD, who is an organizational psychologist. So she's worked with Fortune 500 companies, multinational corporations as well. And she's also the author of Leading Inclusion. So we're talking all things inclusion and how to incorporate it in life and companies as well. So Gina, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, Michael, it's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start with something fairly straightforward really and in the past a lot of people talk about leadership and the conversations around being inclusive and when I was doing a bit of research into leading from the top down in terms of companies and things why do you think that inclusion isn't really won or achieved at the ground level but it should start with the leaders higher up the food chain? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, for let's say that we had a strategic objective that we wanted to enhance inclusion or have inclusion in in an organization. Uh, For every other strategic initiative that organizations would establish, they would start it at the top. It is atypical that one would have something that is meant to affect all employees in an organization and not have a vision and a strategy for it from the top of the organization. So first, I think, is that you ought to be thinking about this as every other business you know, priority. If it is a priority and you say it is, then you need to lead it from the top because that's the only way you get everybody to sort of toe the line and, and do what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Um, but the other reason I think is that you know, inclusion tops diversity. And what I see leaders focusing on more is things like headcount and how many people of a certain group do we have and so on. And that's fantastic. I don't, there's nothing against that. However, what happens when those individuals arrive in an organization where a a foundation, a blanket of inclusion does not already exist in the culture is that it it kind of feels like, you know, if you show up for a dinner party only to find out there's no place setting for you. Mm. Uh, Basically, you know, you're there, you're kind of milling around trying to figure out your, it's awkward. You don't know what to do with your And the only way you get that is if you recognize that inclusion as a part of the culture should precede diversity, because you need people walking into the organization into a culture that is already interested in, in in in, in being inclusive and knows how to do it. So is that where, if you're inclusive, it naturally promotes diversity? Because if you include everybody, then eventually everybody is going to be in your company and therefore it's then diverse. Yeah, I think that if you think that, I think thinking that way is very, very helpful if you have a culture like that. In other words, I have been an employee in companies and I have consulting to companies that weren't particularly diverse, but they could still be inclusive in the sense that they have a culture that says, you know, we focus on respect. This is how we treat humans, any human who shows up. And remember, of course, diversity is not just diversity of race or ethnicity, although for historical reasons that there's a reason why we focus on those, especially in the United States, but, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of personality and so on, all kinds of diversity are more likely to be accepted in a culture where individuals already assume that just showing up as a human and just by virtue of being a human, you have a place here and you get support from day one. So is it like an impression that potential employees or employers would get? So you walk into a company and let's say everyone is of a different ethnic origin than white, or everyone would be colored or black or whatever it is that they 
prefer to be called and you're a white person that likes the company but like to work for them that will come across differently even if it was the other way around it would then be awkward for the person of, of color to walk into this so is it like a front of shop first impression that you get just by the other employees in the organization sets the the theme or sets the agenda for the company as in like if everyone's black or everyone's white if you're not that that's instantly more awkward yeah well i guess there are two pieces to that question there's the piece around yes Humans prefer similarity. That's how our brains are wired. And so any human walking into any situation will tend to gravitate towards or look for uh, something that looks familiar, similar, and that's just sort of their jumping off point. That's just human. So regardless of what the variation is, that is true. But where this becomes an issue, I think, is when a person walks into a situation and actually can tell that the characteristics of the organization that they're walking into are different than the characteristics of the broader population. And there's no logical explanation for that, right? So even let's say a, a, a white person walked into an organization where everybody was black and they walked into this organization in the middle of London, okay? Well, First of all, they would know that the, the demographic characteristics of London are not that, but they might say, oh, that makes sense because it's a black uh, hair care shop. The, the, the clients are all black and the people who know how to work on their hair are all black and it might make sense. I don't know if it makes sense, but it might, okay? That person would walk in there and they would say, I am not black, but I understand this, what's going on here. I understand the context, right? So I, I don't want to divorce the fact, I think humans desire that similarity and familiarity, but what when it becomes a problem in terms of the characteristics of the environment is when it's out of when it doesn't seem aligned to sort of your general notion of what, you know, what the norm should be or what you would expect to see. How would you go about changing something like that if it's the beliefs or sense of self that the owner might have or the CEO might have or the management might have? Is it a case of by allowing them to do their thing, and allow everyone to do their thing maybe within the company it's not necessarily diverse or inclusive but in the area it is because everyone is having their own little pocket or community that the company represents so it's like if you've got a company that represents all of the different identities or looks if you will for want of a better expression if everyone is allowed to have their own version of that in the 30,000 foot view, that would seem that the area is inclusive, even if the company might not be. Yeah. Well, if I understand your, your question, um, uh, let, let me say what how I interpret that. So I, I would say that if you're running an organization, organizations are in business to make money. And it would make sense that their products and services are designed in such a way that they would satisfy the needs of a variety of, of the clientele that is likely to buy this product. It therefore makes sense that it would also be logical to have that variety represented among the people who, who create it, who design it, who innovate and so on, so that there's an alignment between what it is that you're creating and selling and the people who are buying the thing. Now, but within an organization, um, Whatever the whatever those characteristics are, you call them identity or visual characteristics and so on, whatever that is, 
it's okay unless there is something purposeful that the organization is doing. For example, to say we only want certain kinds of people. I mean, other than that, you should be able to just run your enterprise and do whatever it is that you want to do. So, so traditionally, for certain professions in particular, and for certain jobs at certain levels, organizations haven't thought much about the fact that they've set up some rules that have made it difficult for a wide variety of people to get access to the entry-level jobs, never mind the mid-level jobs, and certainly not to the executive level. So whether that's an educational background, a socioeconomic background, you belong to the same country club or whatever, these kinds of things have long been in place. But if you... But if you desire to have an organization that is that is inclusive, you wouldn't want that to happen. And so let's go to the second part of your point of your question, which is, let's say now you have a bunch of people from all these different groups in the organization. Frankly, it does make it a little bit harder for you because you do need to manage a more diverse workforce. But let's, so let's say that's a situation you have. And I think your question was, should I just make sure that each of these little subgroups, you know, sort of have their thing and they're happy and, and within their subgroup. I would say, yeah, that, that probably doesn't hurt, but I actually think it is counterproductive to the goals of an enterprise to have too much sort of that segmentation where people are separating out and only focusing on their own, you know, provincial desires, preferences, and norms. In fact, um, you know, this is where I get kind of tree huggy and, 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 you know, you can tell that my desire is to change the world because <laughs> yeah. what I really believe and, and know is that it is in business life that people from different backgrounds come together. When we go home, we go to different churches, synagogues, libraries, playgrounds, and, and grocery stores and everything. So I already know that. So if this is the one place where we are together, I do think it makes sense to try to figure out how can we, how can we then function as, a, as much as possible in, in the sense where everybody is sort of getting the support that they need, the access, the opportunity, and so on. And I'm less interested in the subgroup needs, although people in those subgroups might want opportunities to get together when it makes sense for, to, to celebrate a certain thing or to share a certain idea, but I wouldn't want that to be contradictory to the overall goals of the, of the bigger group. I'd be curious about where you draw the line between being inclusive, promoting diversity in organizations. And there's a lot of buzz or there was a lot of buzz about things like niching down, being specific. About, what, what was that word? Niching. So, okay. Yeah. So like if, if a company was to be diverse or inclusive, it may look very different, but then there are companies out there that are promoting things like niching down, being specific, going after your ideal clients, all those sorts of things that everyone seems to be throwing around as if it's important, let's say. And I'm sure it is to a certain extent, but then some people listening to this may think well this is going the opposite direction we should be including more casting the net wider so to speak mm -hmm. is that the same thing how do you distinction between those two things yeah so i understand your question and i think here in the united states people call it like affirmative action or something where they talk about do i have to have a certain number of a certain people from a certain group you know and, and that and i think that's where you're getting at and i do think that um 
just doing that for the sake of doing that is not in, is not valuable at all, especially because it creates so much resentment, both among the people who feel like they did not get selected because they didn't fall into this particular group. But also for those who fall into the particular group, there's always the risk that people will look at them and wonder, oh, why did you did you get that opportunity just because you're in a particular group? So I'm mm-hmm. not interested in any of that. I'm not I'm not interested in it for myself, my loved ones or whatever. But what I am interested in is as you say, making the opportunities known to a wide cross section of people so that a wide cross section of people can show up and then present their credentials, their experience and say, guess what? I can do this job. And, and when you show up, if they've never seen a person who looks like Gina, you know, I know there would be some awkwardness, but I'm pretty sure that if you gave me five minutes and we talked about what the job is, I could show you why I thought I would be a good candidate. Like that's my ideal scenario. And, I, and it's a little bit, um, I, I will say, I, I if, with everything I just said, that's kind of like an ideal scenario. It doesn't really play out that perfectly. But I think if our goal is to get to that kind of fairness just from the beginning, I do think it is certainly possible over time. I wonder if there's a way that from the outside looking in, you can tell if it's going the opposite direction, so non-inclusive, discriminatory, those kinds of things. Can you actually tell, like, is it where you would say they're a generic company, but they only have white people in their advertisements? Generally speaking, looking in, you might not even want to apply to work for that company if you were not white. It's like a subliminal, subconscious kind of thing. Even if you go to the company and there's all kinds of populations in there that work for them. And let's just say for argument's sake, they've got one of every kind for now, right? for, for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. They've really gone the, the M&M version of the entire situation. Um, but because of how they're portrayed or that individual ad that that individual person has seen at that time puts them off. But that's mm-hmm. a very cut section of time and one individual situation if the next advertisement that that person's seen the person's black as well that Mm. would change the impression again is it a case of we're never really going to get this right because no matter what the similarity the familiar familiar Mm. (laughs) this, this kind of similarity that people want to have it's always going to be turning some people onto the company and also turning people off. Is it mm-hmm. ever actually doable? Yeah. So a few things. First of all, um, it has never been a level playing field. And I feel like for in in you know in the United States, for example, it's only since the 1960s we had the passage of civil rights legislation where this even became something that organizations would strive for. However, in, in May of 2020, after the death of George Floyd, is when I think business leaders worldwide looked around and said, wait a minute, you know what? There, we don't really even know what the patterns are in our companies. We're, they were noticing it for the first time. Okay, so let's say it's been two years in. So two years into talking about this issue, um, here's what I can tell you that, that relate to this question. Marketing departments for the very first time started to look to see what are the visual images that they're presenting in their marketing. And 
the big companies, the, you know, the car companies, the pharmaceuticals, the retailers, the ones that we see on television and on the internet constantly, I could see they were moving and changing their, their, the visual representations to become more diverse. So I don't think any organization should be just presenting people of any one group. I think any, like, okay, here's an example of this. I needed a marketing video made recently for my book. The first version of the video that came to me did not have any people of color in it. And I said, I'm writing a book about inclusion. I think the book ought to have, the video ought to have some diverse images. <laughs> yeah. The person said, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. So they came back and this time they, what they had done was the first few frames, like almost a third of the video, because this was just a trailer, were all black women. So, I, so then I said to them, okay, so you went the other direction. You thought, because I'm a black woman, that I'm asking you that diversity to me means people who look like me. And I said, so here's the point. I'm saying, I want to see each frame have a variety of people in it, right? Okay, so that that's kind of a funny thing. And I told, I told this story to a group of people yesterday because it's so hilarious. However, that's the whole point. I think if we can just look at when we're doing things where we're representing the organization, we can just take a minute and say, okay, is this even an effort? Is there even any effort here uh, to be representative? So that's, that's one thing. The other thing I did want to say, though, Michael, is that Generation Z, and I hate talking about generations in such a formal way, but I would say that young people who are younger than me, for sure, what they're asking for is they're saying we want fairness in the workplace in, in any ways that that can be defined. And furthermore, when we don't see it, we're not interested in these organizations, even if we are all Caucasian. They're saying if we live in London and we know London is diverse and we walk in, we don't we want something different. And then the other thing is I can learn this about a company before I even walk in. I won't even apply because I can go to um, Glassdoor, for example, and other website. And now they've introduced these indices and these measures so I can learn, is the organization diverse? What are its intentions about diversity and so on, and however they define it. So it's not just that I don't feel comfortable when I show up or that there's something that doesn't feel right. It's if it's important to me, I'm going to do a little bit of research and I'm not going to go to work for a company that I don't think is interested in these issues. What's stopping it from feeling like the company is just ticking a box mm -hmm. and I, I say this as someone that has health conditions and everywhere I go it's equality and diversity and they're always seen to be supporting some kind of initiative for people with hidden illnesses and all of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and it feels okay because I understand that they're trying to portray an image they want to be welcoming for want of a better expression i understand all that not everyone does though and this is where it becomes some people may actually be switched off with the effort if there is any kind of subconscious hint that they're just doing it stick a box to cover their own ass essentially from the higher ups you know like the mm -hmm supervisors covering themselves from their managers and their managers covering themselves from higher management and everyone's trying to please the CEO and the owner and all those things. And is there a way of it not feeling that way? Do you have any tips for people that maybe are in organizations and they think, you know what, we need something that's a bit more welcoming without it feeling like they're just doing it to please the person higher than them? Yeah, 
So I think that's another reason why I wrote a book that's really for executives and organizations primarily, and, and you know, for people who want to lead an enterprise, because that is the primary criticism of most of these efforts from other people, which is we, we hear the word performative, that organizations are just doing window dressing on a variety of things. It's a check the box exercise so they can say they did something. And just yesterday, I had a conversation with a person who is a professional in an organization, but is also responsible for, in, the, in that organization, a global organization, for something they're calling employee resource groups. Well, that's great. Except the employee resource, resource groups, which break down long, you know, ethnicity, LGBTQ plus status, neurodiversity, whatever the employees want, which is great. They define it. This is all like extra work that they're doing on top of their regular jobs. And so when whatever they do is wonderful and they feel good about it, but they don't get any support from the overall, from the leaders of the organization. So when they, whenever they say they want to do something, the leaders, and they take it to the leaders, they sit, they start double, you know, second guessing what they're proposing. So the kinds of things that you're describing happen when these programs, initiatives, activities are created and implemented without the input of the people who are meant to be the beneficiaries. For example, you, when you said whatever it is that you, you know, when you talk about um, invisible, you know, health issues and so on or whatever, however you worded it, what if you and people who had these concerns would, would be the ones that would decide what makes the most sense to do for the, in the organization and might even be somehow involved in the implementation of it, not just as an aside, or a, but maybe as, you know, you're the expert, so let me help you figure it out. So when most often what happens is when you see something that just looks like a check the box exercise, it's because it was implemented without input from those who are meant to be the beneficiaries. And also the day-to-day -day actions of the leaders of the organization otherwise do not indicate that they have any connection whatsoever to the thing that's being done. Well, then would that not imply then that even if the initiative or the active practice that the company goes through, even if they went through that process, because the individual person wasn't involved, they'd be switched off from the company, even if the company did that prior to this other person being involved. It's almost like it's becoming very individualized and in the moment, at the present, is all the determining factor is. Even if, let's say, one initiative created by a company would actually get a council of the public together to debate what works best, debate what fits, what works for the condition or the initiative or the mm -hmm. identity yeah. of sure. the potential employees. Mm -hmm. Even if they put it together, they put it out, they start rolling it out when it starts to do well. And then further on down the line, someone sees it and thinks well they just put it together and it feels like it's ticking a box because i wasn't personally involved sure does that sure. not feel a bit odd yeah and so you're absolutely right i wasn't meaning to suggest that it could everything could be done at the individual level but i did mean to suggest that there could be people involved who have a shared you know understanding of an issue and also that would mean that an organization has a norm that says you need to know that when we do things, this is how we do them. So even if you personally weren't involved in everything, this is how we do it. But here's another thing I would say about that, that actually kind of supports what you said, um, but from a different perspective. Um, 
I think that one of the reasons the Great Resignation was sustained for such a very long time is that a, a big chunk of the people who did not want to um, return to the office or who were concerned about the previous work experiences that they were having, they were basically saying, I don't feel like I should have to sell my soul in order to get a paycheck. I think like that's the bottom line. And so people were leaving, not because they didn't need a job or didn't need money. They just felt like their esteem was being destroyed as they were doing this job. These, these jobs were soul killers. Well, eventually, as, at some point, organizations said, okay, well, get back to work, come back to the office. And they were very confident in saying that. And, and then they realized, wait a minute, some of these people are still not coming back. How could that possibly be? Well, when you look at the data for the people who weren't coming back or who were resisting, what they were basically saying is we need flexibility. We need to have some opportunity to, to we could actually both have a job and live our lives to the fullest. Now, these are not disabilities. These are not issues of you know, discrimination or whatever. These are just human desires, right? And so what organizations have figured out or are starting to figure out is that managers need to understand the members of their teams and be connected to them well enough that they can understand that Michael has a particular thing that says, okay, Michael starts work at 10, everybody else starts at eight, but there's a reason I let Michael do that. Michael does his job, Michael gets paid, we have a fair deal. That's a, 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 a an aberration or a variation rather that we are doing to support Michael for whatever reason, right? has nothing to do with race or gender. It's just human differences. And maybe it's okay to do that. So I think what I'm trying to say is that this idea of managers having to customize experiences for employees actually is something that I'm starting to see, although I'm not yet, I don't know how that will play out in the long run. But I do think what employees in general are asking for is greater flexibility so that they can have their needs met and still do a fantastic job. I wonder if there is actually an improvement in the company when they start doing this. Does it actually happen? I mean, I actually pictured a world, Georgina, where because everyone has similar deep desires outside of reasons why they can't do certain things, the just desires that people generally have, yeah. it tends to be quite straightforward. I wonder if that might actually cause a big shift in company operations as in sorry we can't open at this time because zero of our employees actually want to work at this time it's a very stupid example i get that but i picture a world where that might actually be the case what do you think well actually um let's see uh i don't know maybe it was february of this year i went to a conference where i drove to to this particular location it was in the state of florida but hours away and i drove and on the way back, this was during this was still during the height of the Great Resignation, which, by the way, still exists. I remember on the way back, I stopped at a McDonald's. And I thought, okay, it's on the highway. It's a quick thing. I run in. I use the restroom. I, I, I order my burger. I hit the road, and I'm good. When I got inside, they had signs up that said, "Please be patient." Seventy-five percent of our staff did not show up for work today. We're going to do our best <laughs> to serve you. And this was an extreme example, but it was actually happening all over the fast food industry uh, during this period of time. And it's still happening to some degree. Well, what was that about? It was about exactly what you were saying. These people were saying, you know what? I don't care what you say. I am having such a bad experience in here. Here, I'm not going to come. You'll have to find somebody else. And then you might have to adjust your, the way you do business. Now, I'm not, I don't think that employees should hold 
employers hostage. So I'm not telling you that I'm thinking that that's the way that it, it should be done. But I am saying that, unfortunately, I have actually seen that happen. But I'll say one more thing more specifically. Uh, you're probably aware of the of what has been happening with regard to in the UK, where a, 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 some companies have signed up to do uh, this experiment regarding the four-day work week. So when I was in the prime of my career, meaning like in the middle, when I was still looking for, for whatever, because I, I, I think I'm at the point in my career where I don't worry too much about other people's choices because I can make choices for myself. But at that point in my career, if I had asked for a four-day work week, people would have looked at me like I was an alien. Just the concept <laughs> of the four-day yeah. work week was taboo, right? Definitely. And, and anyone who needed that adjustment, people were kind of like, why did they get to do that? You know? Okay. Here we are in 2022, where swaths of companies are making this experiment. And when I looked at the data at the halfway point from that research project that came out about three weeks ago or so, what they said was that, you know, um, most of the companies that participated in that research found there was no negative effect on productivity. Furthermore, 17% had a significant increase in productivity. And then on the employee side, employees reported being happier and healthier. They were happier because they had this opportunity to control how they use their time on this additional day. And they were healthier because they had more time to choose the meals that they could then prepare at home in the way they would, that would be healthier. And they were doing more exercise. So what the question that you asked is actually not, an, it's not esoteric or abstract. It's today. It's about flexibility in the workplace, but it is to me, that is, um, a concrete example that employees' expectations for the world of work have changed, including, and when I say inclusion, I'm thinking about all of this, including for caregivers, parents, people who have some need to, to have a different kind of schedule, people who think better at night than in the day, who had different circadian rhythms. All of that, I think, is on the table. I think as well, in, in some ways, it's about a combination of the company needing to function, like as you can imagine, if everyone has these desires and they look at the gaps between everyone's schedules and work times and sleep schedules and all those things, that must make it harder for the company to necessarily, let's say, schedule all of that in, which is just another yeah. word for the rotor, right? For their yeah. employees, that sort of thing. That must be quite complicated. But then equally... I think it's actually a form of mutual respect in a way that it was actually all the employees and employers that were dictating things to future employees. Mm -hmm. And I think it's slowly starting to be pulled in the employee's favor, whereby they're able to set certain terms and the companies now have a level of responsibility to at least meet them halfway. If they can't do everything, then doing something is always better than nothing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I do feel we're in the middle of this. We're in the flux of it. It hasn't all settled that settled in. And there are some industries and some CEOs who are still resisting that idea. However, I believe that what's going to happen is that these new expectations will remain. And therefore, it will sort of work itself out organically. People who figure out that the current employer isn't that way will leave and they'll go to a different place. And people who don't care as much about this and who think that you know everything should be rigid, well, they'll get the rigid employees and they'll have to figure out how to manage those kinds of employees. So I do think that's going to happen over time. But you know, let's be realistic about this. Even though I'm talking about this as if this is what's 
what's happening all over. It isn't what's happening all over. I would imagine that the companies that are in this research study in the UK are the ones that are already more progressive. They're more inclined to be thinking this way. So I do think the personality, the values of the leaders of organizations, this is another example of how the personalities and the values of, of individual leaders and in organizations impact the way they react to the, work, to the workforce. But so, the, so what I would look for, I'm looking for those employers and those CEOs and those C-suite leaders who are thoughtful and progressive and respectful. That's what I'd be looking for in my next employer. Is it about just respect then? And have you ever found there are people that would feel disrespected if their wishes were not met in a way that they get angry about it, they get frustrated about it, even when there's an element of, well, we do need people that can work at this time that can meet these expectations because we need someone that could do this as a company. Mm-hmm. And is it that kind of agreement whereby there are people out there that do get angry and feel disrespected when a company still has its own employees to meet the expectations of shareholders, that sort of things. It's so much more complicated than the employee might even be aware of. Yeah. Is it that cut and dry? Is it that complicated? How, how can we justify this conversation when it's about respect, mm-hmm. when the opposite of that isn't necessarily, in my mind, it isn't necessarily okay for someone to be irate and angry and feel disrespected and rejected and all those things just because the company can't meet their standards. Right. So this is where, well, two things, you know, my grand grandfather worked six and a half days, six days of the week, six days a week. That was the standard. He worked six days. He worked on Saturdays. And then one day they went to one time, they went to five days a week. I remember this. My, so bear with me here to say that these work norms have been in place for a very, very long time. The patterns that we are accustomed to, the five-day work week, the nine to five, the eight to four, like whoever made those rules, those have been in place ever since the Industrial Revolution. And they started in England, by the way. So that's fine. And we've all abided by those. Now, along comes a change in the world, a macro change, like a, like a pandemic, where caregivers and parents couldn't figure out how they're going to educate their kids, how to keep them safe, how to, um, you know, how to protect them, how to do that, and also um, do their jobs. I mean, it just, every the, all the rules change. So employees figured out, wait a minute, okay, I got to work from home in some cases, because you can't do everything from home. And I was like, wait a minute, I was more productive, I was happier, I could do something for my kids and my spouse and my loved ones or whatever. Why couldn't it be this way? And at the same time, those same executives had that same experience. They were jetting off to wherever they wanted to go because they no longer had to be in the headquarters. They were building second homes in the Caribbean and the Canary Islands and different places. And they were getting benefits from that as well. So it would be naive of anyone to, 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 to not acknowledge that something has changed. The, the, the context has changed. The work world has changed. The social norms have changed. People aren't silly. So therefore, it would be, I think, naive to just say, well, let's just keep doing everything the way we had always done it. So from a leadership perspective and from an employee perspective, I think employees would be smart to figure they need to give organizations time to catch up to this new reality. I don't think organizations can just flip on a dime and say, "Okay, well, free for all, just do whatever. And I'm not even sure free for all is what we're going for. But I do think that employees expect organizations to acknowledge these differences, this new environment 
and not just pretend like nothing ever happened. Let's just go back to everything the way it was. Um, and then I'll say one more thing. Um, with regard to the word respect, you know, I, because I, it, because my book tended to really focus on the issues of race, ethnicity, and gender, I decided I couldn't focus on everything because other variations weren't necessarily my expertise. Um, and I wanted to be able to tell a story that was not just fat-based, but also had the expert, you know, the day-to-day the, the -day stories in it. Um, that's my focus. And when I, I did some research where I talked about 30 executives in the summer of, of 2020 into 2021, and I asked them, why is it that it seems as if you, you, what is holding you back from leading the conversation about inclusion in your organization, from making it as impactful as possible? And what they said was very clear. They were very honest. Number one, um, I'm not sure it belongs on my plate. Like this is all of a sudden, you know, somebody's saying this is something I ought to be focusing on. It was never on my plate before. The second thing they were saying is, People who give me advice tell me, oh, be very careful. You know, this is a lose-lose a, a proposition. No matter what you do, you can't do it right. And if you do nothing, you're wrong. So you're better <laughs> yeah. off just wait and see. And then the third thing they said was, well, I'm not even sure who the people are that are meant to benefit from this, the Michaels and the Genas of the world. I'm not even sure what they want. I'm not even, I don't even know who they are. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, basically, you know, I don't, I don't understand them. That's what they said. And they were very honest. Okay. And then I did a survey of employees, employed employees, obviously, uh, a survey of employees. And among that, I did a survey of approximately four, five, 459 employees, including 150 Black women. And that was, I wanted to get the perspective of Black women. As I said before, they, tended to they tend to have the lowest favorability in terms of their experiences in the workplace. So I wanted to hear, when I asked them, what is it that is holding the leaders back. They said, what they said was, oh, I know that this is how the leaders think. I know the leaders don't think it belongs, there on, belongs on their plates. I know the leaders don't want to touch this because they think it's a, a, a no win for them. And I know they don't understand me. How I know that is because they avoid me. They kind of back away from me personally, but also from the issue. And I interpret that avoidance as disrespect for my needs um, in, in the organization, the things I need from the organization to support me so I can thrive. If they were respectful instead, they would pay attention to the issue so they could understand it and identify solutions, not just for Gina and Michael, but that would benefit the whole organization. So this whole thing about respect became much more important to me as a focus when I, once I really understood that because Respect doesn't just mean, can I get my own way? Respect means, what does it feel on a day, like on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm doing whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm doing it? And do I feel as if the people who have the power can see me, can hear me, and can value me just for my humanity uh, when I show up? That's a very, very interesting perspective, actually. And I wonder if I can get your thoughts on how other people will tend to use it in terms of being disrespected and wanting to be respected and when you brought up that it's not about getting your own way that's the impression that some people may actually feel is happening and mm -hmm. they feel like if they're not getting their own way then that's disrespectful mm -hmm. as if there's not a massive spectrum here where yeah. it's not about getting your own way it's not about being entitled or selfish or whatever the, the term is it's about mutual respect. absolutely it works both yeah. ways 
Yeah, it does. I agree with you. In fact, it's the whole point. Okay. So first of all, I can't speak for everybody in the world, but speaking from my own, from my own perspective, both in terms of my education, my experience, and then just my personality, I believe that you get a whole lot more success when you work with, with people and with goodwill. So I always assume good intent, regardless of whatever it is that I'm doing. And I recommend other people do that. And so that means that you know, there are, for example, I wrote the reason that my book has the cover that it has, the reason I approach the whole, this whole issue from the perspective I do is because it is important for the people who I've been trying to, who I'm trying to influence to be able to hear me, to be able to process what I'm saying and not tune it out, to be able to say, oh, well, it doesn't seem like she's asking me, well, for example, there is, there is no special leadership required for people who, who have variations, whatever those variations are. There's good leadership, which means you understand the people you lead, regardless of who they are, and then you treat them, you know, all with as much as possible, you know, as equitably as possible. And poor leadership means that you only understand a fraction of your workforce or a fraction of your candidates, or you ignore a, a fraction of your workforce and you don't understand their needs and you're not interested in understanding them. So knowing that, what I say in response to your question is that on both sides, people have got to be, well, first of all, a business is there to, to be in business. It's not there to satisfy everything that Gina and Michael desires. However, it is when an organization does understand what Gina and Michael desire and can, can weave that in wherever possible and I can have a better experience, then I can be more productive and so on. So I don't think it is as all about getting your way, um, but I do think some people might not know how to express their frustration about what it is that they aren't getting. And so I try to help people say, you know what? Dif we all should master difficult conversations. We all should know how to ask for what we want. But again, I, I, and I don't mean to be um, naive about this because my own personal experiences have not been uh, overly negative. I mean, I'm, I'm very, I consider myself very privileged and lucky in so many ways. But I'm thinking about the person who has uh, a limited education, has access, limited access to opportunities. You know, I know it's not as easy to, to articulate these things, but you have to find a way to say, you know, you probably didn't realize it, but when you did this thing or when so-and-so happened, this is the effect it had on me. And that effect was it made me either feel something or it caused me not to be able to do something or not to be able to get something. If you can explain that in a way that the other person can go, they'll, they'll go, oh my gosh, I did not know that. I had no idea. And a reasonable person would respond by saying, huh, let me see what I can do about that. A reasonable person, not everybody's reasonable. So I do think that there's, so you have to allow that there's a give and take in everything that you do and desire and going after, including um, these kinds of issues. Now, an unreasonable person would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, um, you're making you're making something up or you're, you know, what you just said didn't make any sense. And then you still have to do more work. You still have to continue, especially if you work with the, per with the person to help them understand. So I do think um, I have a, a responsibility to try to help the people who I want to help me so that they can uh, you know, have it in them to do it. I think as well, if you think about it in terms of meshing and weaving it in, which I think is very well put, by the way, I couldn't quite think of the, the word, but you did so well at doing that. It's about realizing that some people may need a bit more help than others and other people may not actually need the help 
which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Mm. But I feel like some people, there needs to be a bit more of a give. Sometimes they may feel like they're taking. Like I have my moments when I think I'm actually taking too much, which makes me actually want to give even more, which is one of the reasons why I started this show really, was I wanted to give more than, than I was taking. And it makes me think that it's a very complicated thing because you've got people that don't need as much from a company alongside someone else that may need more from a company, whether it's flexibility, mm -hmm. resources, energy, whatever the mm -hmm. case is. And yet they're both doing very similar jobs they're very similar in terms of financial compensation, perhaps. And they're both in the same room. How can you help people with this? And I'm thinking about things like difficult conversations, how to have them casually enough that they can happen during the workday. And not every company in the world has to sit down in some kind of sharing circle once a week and essentially glorified therapy so then that people can get along. I think that it should probably be better than that, as in it should be during the workday. It should be alongside work. It should be how do we communicate with one another seamlessly in this way. Otherwise, don't forget, I, I don't like therapy either. So the idea of sitting in a circle, confessing my feelings to everyone, whether they like it or not, I'm an introvert, Gina. I don't like being in groups yes. of people at the yeah. best of times. So yeah. the idea of sharing my innermost thoughts to everybody all at once is not something I would do even if it was there and mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people that may be thinking the same thing yeah. is there a way of doing this better yeah a lot of people feel the way you feel and so I there I don't know why that became the standard operating procedure but I do know exactly what you're talking about but you'll notice that what I said in response to the previous question was I think well I didn't explicitly say this but let me be explicit I think organizations have got to teach people how to have one-on-one -on -one interactions, not just managers and employees, but employee to employee, manager to manager, employee to manager, like individual interactions. It has to be okay. But let's also, it has to be okay for me to come up and say what I just said, to, to be able to say to you, Michael, I know you didn't, you probably didn't realize it, but when you did so-and-so, here's what happened. Like that language that sounds so simple most people do not do that because as a human, we're inclined to avoid conflict. That's a human condition, all humans. But the other thing is many of us work in organizations where all that, all that matters is a hierarchy. You would never say that to your manager. You would never say that to your supervisor. Or if you say it to your colleague, your colleague, instead of talking to you, will go talk to your manager to fix the problem instead of talking to you. Those are actually all leadership problems, Michael. They're not there are problems that say we've created an environment where instead of allowing for one-on-one -on -one interactions that can actually solve problems, we set up a system and a process. People have to go over here, over there to solve a problem and it doesn't solve the problem and it takes us further apart. So I actually am calling for a complete redefinition of what good leadership is, how we would define it, what it would look like. And I call, you know, no, I don't call it this. I'm not the first person. I'm saying, you know, a more human-centered approach. Because if you can do an MBA from the top schools in the world, right? And in that, they focus on finance and marketing and operations, research and strategy. And then there's this little thing over here they call soft skills that you might kind of do and you giggle as you do it because everybody agrees it's not that important, but they told us we have to do it in our MBA curricula, which is how, actually how it works. And then you think that you're going to run this big enterprise with other humans in it. 
Well, that's not what leadership should be about. And there's actually a great book on this subject, Michael. Um, it's written, it's called Leadership Reckoning. I love the book. Uh, it came out in 2021. And it's really from um, a former uh, military general who also, after leaving the military, was an administrator at, a, at Rice University um, and built this leadership program where they say, we're not just teaching people to study leadership, we're teaching people to be leaders. Uh, so I do think we have to really consider what we mean by effective leadership and we need to change that. So it really focuses on the human experience at the core, in addition to all these other uh, things that get more attention right now. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Gina. This has been eye-opening i'm sure it's a jumping off point for some people to uh, find out more and i know that your book is very helpful with that so uh, how can people find out more about you gina and share how people can grab your book as well oh thank you michael so my name is gina with an e don't ask me why g-e-n-a-c-o-x.com is where you can find me gina cox if you go there and you go to the book page, you'll find the book. Uh, you can go to amazon.com. You can go to your favorite uh, retailer other than Amazon and find the book. It's available wherever books are sold. Uh, if you're in the United Kingdom, the book is releasing there on November 20, uh, 22nd. It has already, but it is already available in audiobook, in um, ebook, uh, where anywhere in the world. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Gina, it's been great, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure.